Welcome to this week's episode of Inception Family Wealth Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Delaney. I'm the author of The Naked Opus, Growing Your Family Wealth for the Long Term. This podcast features interviews with thought leaders, authors, and leading experts in the estate planning and business succession fields. It's intended for people planning to transition their wealth and for their trusted advisors. The concept of Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast is to move beyond mere tactics and dig deeper into the purpose, strategy, and intent of estate planning and family business transition planning. Each episode will feature an organizing question framed as a what-if question. Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast is available on many platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. This week's special guest is Dr. Howard Johnson. Howard is the Canadian Market Leader and Managing Director in the M&A Advisory Practice at Duffin Phelps. An educator at heart, Howard is the author of several books on the subjects of corporate finance and valuation, published by the Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada, including Shareholder Value in 2018, Strategic Acquisitions in 2015, and Selling a Private Company in 2014. This week on our show, he'll be answering the question, what if I intend to sell my business? And now, our interview with Dr. Howard Johnson. Welcome, Howard. Uh, it's great to have you on the Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast show today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, can you share with our listeners what you do in the mergers and acquisitions space? You know, if someone's not familiar with, uh, uh, with a practitioner in that field, what does a person do in the M&A space? And how did, you, how did you get into that space? And you know, where do you find your passion working with, uh, working with business owners? Yeah, so uh, my formal title is a managing director and head of mergers and acquisitions for Duff and Phelps in Canada. Uh, Duff and Phelps is a global valuation and corporate finance firm with about four thousand people across twenty-eight countries, and uh, you know we we work seamlessly uh, across the board. So. Whenever I have a mandate to sell a business or buy a business, I am able to tap into and work with my colleagues, be they in the U.S. or Europe or Asia. So it's a it's a comprehensive and seamless platform. Uh, but within the merger and acquisition space, we typically focus on what we call the mid market, and the mid market is ill defined, but you'll call it companies that are worth somewhere between fifteen or twenty million dollars at the lower end and three or four hundred thousand three or four hundred million dollars at the higher end so it does tend to be a fairly wide range uh different uh, different investment banks and different business brokers tend to focus on different segments so you know at, at the low end <clears throat> sub 10 million dollar range oftentimes business brokers will help you know smaller businesses in in facilitating that sale we focus more on the on the middle market, so that tends to be an established uh, business with some you know, meaningful value. And then at the very high end, there are the major investment banks that focus on deals that are half a billion dollars or, or greater. So our focus is really on that middle market. And what we do is really end-to-end service. So you know, we meet with a client, and all meetings are you know, confidential, no cost, no obligation. Uh, we get an engagement letter signed, and then we really take the mandate from end to end, which captures you know, identif- uh, identifying the right potential uh, buyers, uh, doing a valuation of the business, uh, 
helping the business owner get the business ready for sale, all the way through to negotiating, deal structuring, and closing the transaction. So it's really end-to-end. The three elements that we don't do are, first of all, uh, oftentimes there is some complex tax structuring. While we are aware of tax, uh, we are not tax specialists, and anyone with a complex tax structure probably already has an advisor in that regard. We are not lawyers, and obviously a a good M&A lawyer is something that any any seller or buyer needs in a transaction to ensure that all the representations and warranties and and other elements of a purchase agreement are are well well documented. And, And finally, we're not wealth managers. So once the money lands into the seller's pocket, we're not the folks to manage it. You know, we hand it over to to some somebody that you know, specializes in that area. But all the rest we, we take care of. Uh, I've been doing this for about the past quarter century. Uh, my previous background was a, an accountant with, with KPMG in my early years, and then I spent several years in industry, so actually running various businesses, so I have an appreciation for the, the challenges that many business owners uh, go through. And really got into the valuation and M&A space around the, uh, the mid-1990s, uh, acquired a, a firm in, in Toronto, and then eventually sold that to Duff & Phelps a number of years ago. And again, the reason I liked Duff & Phelps is because of the seamless global platform that really allows us to stretch uh, into other markets seamlessly and find the right buyer or seller, as the case may be. Well, and, and I've known you probably for 15 years now and, and uh, seen you speak and, and uh, uh, I've always found that one of the, 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 and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is, is that one of the, the great skills that you have, I think, is, is you're a good teacher uh, and, and, you know, you're a, an accomplished author. You write a lot of books and, and I think you've got a real commitment to education. Um, and I would imagine that that commitment to education is something that you pass on to the experience that your clients will have so that they can learn and understand what this, uh, what this selling the business using a, 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 an M&A platform is, is all about. Um, and I've often found that that was the, you know, the, we both worked in spaces where there were a lot of acronyms and, uh, and, and uh, it often got not necessarily not by yourself, of course, but it would get tossed around like people understood and, and clients or business owners who would be the, the listeners for this show or their advisors often didn't understand those uh, acronyms, didn't understand uh, the process that was in, involved. And it can be very intimidating because this is the often, you know, the, the, the vast majority of a person's uh, career work as well as their, their personal wealth. Um, so when you talk about things like doing evaluation or getting a, a business ready for sale, um, what does that mean as a practical matter for, for someone who's listening, who's thinking of selling their business? What does that mean for them? Well, we recognize that for most business owners, the sale of their business is as much a personal decision as it is an economic decision. Uh, in many cases, they've put their heart and soul and, and lifetime in, into their business and a lot of sleepless nights. And while the economics are always important, it's also important in many cases that there be some intangible elements that, that are met in the sale. 
they want to feel, for example, that the business has a good home, that the uh, customers will be appreciated, that the culture will be maintained. So all of these things, you know, become very important. So it's much more comprehensive than saying, get me the best price. Uh, you know, with respect to getting a business ready for, for sale, it is a much greater undertaking than most business owners will recognize. Because you have to look forward and really ask yourself, what is a buyer really acquiring? And in most cases, it's not so much the physical assets. It's not the equipment, machines, and so on that you know anybody can go out there pretty much and, and acquire. It's the intangible aspects of the business that are important. And usually that's the, the people that work in the business and the skills they have, the products or services that are offered, and the, the extent to which those are distinct or differentiated, uh, or there's some know-how or patent associated with them. And, and it's the customer base. Right? A diverse base of repeat customers is always a key element when selling a business. So you know, in the preparation stage, you know, a lot of the work goes around how do we solidify and in fact enhance those intangible elements that are so critical to any buyer because that's really the goodwill of the business. And if you think about it, a business owner should be looking at not maximizing the price per se for their business, but maximizing the goodwill they get for, for the business, what's paid for, the intangible values that go beyond what's on a, what's on a balance sheet. So we spend time working with business owners on, on that element. And we also try to understand what their personal objectives are because for some business owners, they just want out completely and they're looking for a strategic buyer that will come in and give them the best price and, and take care of their people. And, and so that business owner can move on uh, in their life after a fairly short transition period. There's usually some transition period at least. It may be as short as three or six months. It may be several years, and that really depends on how involved the business owner was leading up to the sale. Uh, ideally, a business owner has been able to withdraw somewhat from the business, have a good management team in place, and therefore almost made themselves redundant because a lot of buyers are very wary about buying a business where the owner is so entrenched that unless he or she is committed to working 60 hours a week, the, the deal will, will fail. So business owners are well advised to build a good management team, build the processes and systems, and so that they can manage from afar, if you will, as opposed to being involved. But there's also other considerations. You know, by way of example, a sale might, uh, might include something to a private equity firm that might want to acquire for 75% of the business, and have the business owner retain a 25% residual interest. Some business owners like that, and some business owners prefer not to. It's not a question of right or wrong, it's a question of personal preferences. The same with a management buyout. In some cases, a business owner might want to help facilitate a sale to management, whereas in other cases, that just won't work. So our role as intermediaries isn't to sell the business per se, but is to help to gather a number of good quality alternatives for the business owner and help them to weigh those alternatives so that the business owner can select the, the deal or the path that best meets their interests, both economically and personally. And do you find that um, business owners have given much thought to what those 
personal objectives are. Is that, um, I know in my own experience, it was a bit of a mixed bag that way, but I often felt that understanding what those personal objectives were and uh, was, was uh, sometimes the, the hurdle that had to be overcome uh, in order to, to actually begin to move ahead on the sale. Because as you mentioned, I mean, psychologically, this is, uh, this is a, a, a big deal for somebody. A lot of their identity is going to be wrapped up in, in this business, no matter who it's sold to. Absolutely. And I often joke and say I, I give up all of the financial and accounting designations that I've, that I've gathered and trade them in for a, deal in, for a degree in psychology <laughs> because it's really about the, the the emotions and the need and the desire to transact. So we do find it very helpful if a business owner has carefully considered what the outcome will be and what he or, he or she will do after the transaction. And it often helps to you know sit down to a long trusted advisor you know that they've known for for many years, like like a wealth manager or something like that that knows them personally, that knows their children, that knows their, their health situation, and they can confide in. Uh, when an intermediary like myself comes in, we're usually parachuted in, and we try our very best to understand that business owner, but we typically don't have the benefit of a long history. So sometimes a business owner is well served by talking to someone who has you know, been a trusted confidant for five or ten years, and can, can ask them tough questions, like how many times can you sweep the garage, and do you want to travel, what do you want to do? Uh, you know, business owners have to also think very carefully about how they're, uh, how they're going to conduct themselves after the transaction. Uh, are they prepared to stay around for three or four years uh, after a buyer has acquired their business and make that transition from owner to employee? You know, those things are, are difficult. Or do they want to be out after three or six months? There's no right or wrong here, but it's difficult and you lose credibility as the seller if you represent to a buyer, for example, that you'll stay around for three years and then subsequently change your mind after the process has begun and say you'd prefer only three months because now you've gotten a situation where there's an inconsistency and a change in expectation. So it's fine for a business owner to have the expectations they need. Uh, in terms of how long they'll stick around and even the terms of the transaction. So one of the key things I think that any seller has to recognize of a privately held business is that the terms of a transaction are at least as important as the price because the terms of a transaction dictate when and how and under what conditions the purchase price may or may not be paid. So while everyone likes cash at closing, there are, especially in private company transactions, there are other mechanisms that are used, like promissory notes or like earnouts or other mechanisms that will only pay if certain things happen. And while a business owner will oftentimes look at their business from the inside out, they have to recognize that the buyer perceives risk to be higher than the seller normally does. And any seller should recognize that any dollar not received at the closing of a transaction is a dollar at risk. And they have to be satisfied the prospective reward is worth that risk. So even before going to the marketplace, even before engaging in discussions, they should, with, with buyers, the business owner should discuss with their investment banker and with their trusted other advisors what they're prepared to do and how life would, uh, should unfold for them after the deal because that will help dictate 
the time they'll, sp they'll stick around for, the terms of the, the transaction, and other key parameters that should be addressed at the outset of a deal, not toward the end. And that very much sounds like a process rather than an event. Uh, would, you, would you agree with me that, that uh, the sale of a business is, is really should be viewed as a process rather than an event? And then when you think of it that way, you, the opportunity to do some planning actually, instead of just reacting, uh, um, actually begins to, to reveal itself and, and there's a lot of benefits that can go with that planning as well. Absolutely. I mean, the sale process itself being the time between the time that a business owner uh, starts to work with their intermediary in order to prepare an information memorandum, reach out to buyers, negotiate a transaction and close is normally between six and nine months, depending on factors such as the size and complexity of the business. I usually suggest that business owners give themselves a year for that part of the process, just in case things drag out a little bit longer. But prior to the time that starts, there is, it's, it's very important that the business owner and their advisors, be they financial planners or lawyers or accountants or others, uh, work with the business owner to ensure that the business is ready for sale. And there are many considerations in this regard. There is, for example, pre-sale tax planning. I tell all my clients there are three parties to every transaction, the buyer, the seller, and the government. And there are a lot of things that business owners can do legitimately to reduce or defer the government's take. But if they're not planned in advance, you lose those opportunities. The lifetime capital gains exemption is a great example of that, which is you know, roughly $850,000 per individual. So if you can, uh, you can magnify that uh, or multiply that benefit with a spouse and children and make it work three or four times over or even more, you know, there's a lot of tax savings there legitimately. But there are certain requirements that need to be met, and you can't do it, uh, you know, as you're just about to close the deal on a transaction. It does take several years, and in in that case, for example, uh, the shares have to be held for at least 24 months prior to the uh, transaction taking place. So it, it requires some some pre-sale planning. Uh, if you pay extra taxes, you don't even get a thank you card from the government. So you know, it's well worthwhile to ensure that planning takes place but apart from the uh, you know apart from the tax piece there are many other uh, things that need to be done beforehand that do take time i mentioned before about the importance of having a good management team in place because a buyer when a buyer is is looking to buy a business they will look across the table to the business owner and ask themselves if i put money into that person's pocket if i put 10 or 15 or 20 million into that person's pocket are they going to be incentivized to stick around even though they said they might stick around? No, a buyer usually likes to look next to that business owner and see some strong managers that can take over the, the business and who are key employees and committed. And this leads to another key question that a lot of business owners have is, when do I tell my employees that I'm thinking of selling my business? 
And this is always a tough question because of confidentiality and you don't want to spook employees. Our usual recommendation, and it does depend on each, you know, each fact-specific circumstance, but usually if there are a handful of key employees, you want to bring those individuals in early in the transaction because you're going to need their help as a business owner. The sale of a business is a much greater undertaking than most business owners recognize in terms of the due diligence and the you know, working with lawyers on representations and warranties, et cetera. It is a, almost a full-time commitment. And business owners have to remember not to stop running their business as they're trying to sell it. That's a key. But they should be working with their management team. And of course, if you tell your managers the business might be uh, sold, managers can get nervous about that. And the business owner should anticipate the next question, which is the, those key managers asking, what's in it for us? Mm -hmm. And the business owner better have thought about that beforehand and thought about how do I reward and protect my key employees because without those individuals, my business might be worth a lot less or not even saleable. So it's possible, and it's common in some cases, that a portion of the purchase price or there's a special bonus to key employees to help sell the business, uh, and maybe even a pay-to-stay bonus for those individuals to stick around afterwards. Right? Because having a good quality management team that's committed to the business is key. And of course, that doesn't come overnight. It could take years. Same with processes and systems in place. A buyer is going to look over and say, you know, is, uh, is this a business that is dependent on the owner? Does it have what we call personal goodwill? Personal goodwill is a huge detriment to any seller because it means that the value is not embedded in the business, it's embedded in the individual. And that is a path to disaster because that business may not even be saleable. That business owner may, might be called or it might be what I call a stuck holder. They're stuck in that business and nobody wants it without them. And they might want to be leaving the business. So it can take years to get the management team in place and systems and processes in place and the business cleaned up. Because remember, for a business owner, when you take that business to market, you have one chance to make a good first impression. And buyers like clean, simple businesses, ideally that, are, that have a growth story behind them, so ideally showing or demonstrating that there is growth over the previous year and the likelihood of growth will continue because there's new products, new customers, and so on. Because most buyers that are worth their salt will have six or eight or ten opportunities at any given time. You know, how does the business owner ensure that his or her business gets to the top of that pile and gets the buyer's attention and commitment to get the deal done? And these things take time. So, Chris, you're absolutely right that, you know, thinking about a business, if somebody wants to retire and be totally out and done by the time they're 65, they better start thinking about selling when they're, when they're about 60 or 61. Wow. Because it will take a couple of years of pre-sale preparation and at least a year or give it a year to sell the business to the outside, plus give the potential buyer, you know, at least a year while the business owner will stick around. So it is a lengthy process, and to your point, a process, not an event. Well, and, and, and sellers have to be realistic, and, and you alluded to this. I mean, uh, when you're 55 or so, conceptualizing your willingness to stick around and, and uh, fulfill those commitments, 
is probably a lot uh, more uh, honest than when you're closer to 63 or 64 and you're now looking at a five, four or five year process. And at the end of that process, you, you may have to stick around for another year or so with the business. I mean, your your entire mindset at that point in your life is going to be dramatically different from even 10 years or, or 20 years before that. We all go through these cycles. Uh, and, and, and uh, you know, business owners forget that when they're hitting their early 60s, they're probably grandparents now. And <coughs> pardon me, and their long-suffering spouse uh, uh, wants to do some traveling with them now. And all of these different contentions, all these different legitimate pulls on, on your time and, and, and on your emotional bandwidth become even more powerful. And, and uh, so it's not the same decision-making in your 50s as it, in terms of the cycle of your life as it is even early in your 60s. Well, that, that, and that's exactly it. And you never know what's going to happen because life events do occur unexpectedly. And oftentimes, you know, things like illnesses or, or other events happen. But for any business owner, you know, it's, it's important that they have that good management team in place and a business that's not dependent on them. Yeah. Because in an ideal world, they could go to a prospective buyer and say to that buyer, look, I can stick around for a year or two if you want me, but if you don't, don't need me, don't want me, I don't need to be around either. And giving a buyer that flexibility you know, puts, the, you know, puts the owner in a better position. Remember that despite all the economic voodoo that goes behind selling a business, uh, a lot of it has to do with negotiation. And so the business owner should be thinking about maximizing their negotiating leverage and minimizing any pain points in, in terms of their negotiation. So if the business owner can effectively work themselves out of a job, and, and in an ideal world, I've got business owners that say, look, I spend four months of the year in, down in, in Florida when it's cold, and you know I might phone in once a week just to th see how things are, are going, but the business runs fine without me. That's great news for a buyer, and it's great news for a seller because it means that the business can run on its own. And to a buyer, it means that there's no dependence on the business owner. And consequently, it reduces what can oftentimes be perceived to be a very significant risk factor when acquiring a company. So regardless of what a business owner you know, may end up doing, uh, they're usually best off by developing that strong management team. And there's a cost to it, right? Let's, let's, Make no mistake, there's a cost to having a good, diverse, and committed management team. Plus, there's also the business owner who has to emotionally remove themselves from the business you know, and ensure that he or she is not the key contact point for key customers and, and all the new ideas for products. They have to have that good team in place. These things take time to build and nurture and develop. Um, and, and, you know, you are, uh, you, you are describing, I think, uh, a very time-tested and, and true uh, uh, concept, which is you do often have to invest uh, some some uh, resources into anything in order to achieve the the uh, uh, the preferred valuations. When you go to sell it, you have to invest to make money. And and um, do you find that business owners, just generally, um, really understand what the 
you know, we, you talk about multiples uh, for valuation of a private company, any company really. And I, I used to bump into uh, mostly private, uh, 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 private owners of uh, uh, private companies and, and they would have in their mind multiples similar to uh, or expectations about a multiple uh, that would be similar to what a publicly traded company might get. And it was often part of our conversation to try and dial those expectations back a bit. Do you find that um, business owners, as sophisticated as they can be, really do understand what a buyer is looking at in terms of value in, in strategic or otherwise in a business? Yes, and, and one of the reasons that I, I do a lot of writing and teaching, as you mentioned before, Chris, is to educate business owners on how a buyer looks at value you know, in a, you know, in a fairly practical way without a lot of acronyms and so on. And, you know, what realistic expectations are. Now, in a sale process, you never know what the price of a business is going to be until, you know, it, it is closed. And sometimes you are uh, unexpectedly delighted and sometimes you're disappointed. That does happen. But I think that any business owner has to go in with the expectation or the mindset that as long as they receive a fair and reasonable offer, they are a seller because it's dangerous for business owners to go into a process with expectations or with the mindset that says, if I get a blowout offer, I'll take it. But otherwise I'm going to you know, just keep the business. Now, dipping the toe in the water often is the wrong approach because of the time and the effort that it takes to do so. and you know, once you've done so and you've retracted, if you turn down a reasonable and fair offer, most business owners find that when they return to the marketplace, that offer is no longer there or buyers are less interested in spending time and resources to look at something when they've seen it before. And there's also that negotiating mentality, right? That if it hadn't sold before, it means that, that you didn't get the price you wanted and therefore, you know, it's, uh, it's back on the market now. It must be worth less. So business owners should have a realistic uh, mindset insofar as what the business is worth and be ready to transact at that. As I mentioned before, the price and the terms are entwined. So these multiples can be all over the place and multiples are inherently dangerous. You know, the, a, a very common reference point is a multiple of what's called EBITDA, so earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And it tends to be a benchmark against which many businesses are valued. And despite its popularity, it can be highly misleading because you know, it doesn't look specifically at the need to put capital back into the business, which a buyer will consider, but of course is done behind the scenes from a buyer's perspective as opposed to upfront. So when negotiating multiples, oftentimes business owners will hear about the multiple that somebody seems to have obtained in the marketplace, and those can be quite misleading because, for example, uh, it may have been a multiple that was based on a bunch of earnout value, meaning that uh, let's say there is a business that was doing $5 million in this EBITDA, so before interest and taxes and depreciation and somebody heard that it was sold for $50 million, so a 10 times multiple, and everybody in the industry suspects that my business must also be worth 10 times or more. 
What you don't know is what's underneath the uh, or underneath the, the water of that iceberg. So that $50 million may not have been a cash deal. It may have been a deal whereby a lot of the payment was if uh, the business met certain thresholds. Well, that put that $50 million value at, at, at risk. Or alternatively, that $5 million EBITDA threshold that was uh, you know, that was rumored in the marketplace may have been the actual uh, profit level of the business and not adjusted for things like shareholder remuneration or other one-time costs that may have deflated that number. So the real multiple may have only been six or seven times, but nobody ever knows that unless you're involved in the transaction. So I try to convince business owners to, you know, understand multiples and where they come from, but you don't take a multiple to a bank. The question is, how much am I gonna get paid for the business? How much is up front? How much is over time, if any? What's the risk of receiving that other money? And how much am I keeping in my pocket after taxes? That is the true test as to whether value has been received. Whether it's a high multiple or a low multiple, it should be a secondary thought. And, and you mentioned that uh, one of the things buyers like to look for is sort of the, the positive forward momentum of a growth story. Is that something you um, help your, your clients uh, work on? Like, is that, is that something they should do alone? Or do, is it better if they contact someone like yourself, understand how their business is likely to be valued by a, pur a potential purchaser and, and understand the market generally and understand the terms and conditions that you just described, but then begin to understand where they can invest the resources that they do have with the time that remains before they would like to take it to market to turn it from, you know, maybe a, something that's providing a nice lifestyle uh, to something that now has a, a, a really exciting growth story to it. Is that something you help out with? Yeah, th that, that's part of our mandate. So as part of putting together the information package, we help the seller to develop meaningful and credible projections. Uh, it's, and, and projections have to be really well thought out. You know, they can't just be, let's take last year and add 10% because that has no substance and no credibility. It should be well thought out in terms of if there's going to be growth, where is it going to come from? Is it new customers? Is it new products? Is it new regions? And it's really the meat behind that, that growth story that will dictate whether it is credible or not. And it is a lot of work, right? Because you have to think through carefully and look at different scenarios and look at it with a skeptical, uh, from a skeptical point of view. And that's what we try to bring is the perspective that a buyer is going to use when they look at projections and ask those tough questions because it's better that they be asked and addressed up front rather than later on. One of the common mistakes that business owners make is to uh, demonstrate to a prospective buyer that they are going to generate substantial growth in the near term and then they miss that uh, benchmark. So, it's always nice to have a growth story, but you want to ensure that it's growth that you are highly confident that you're going to achieve. And there's two reasons behind that. Number one is between the time the projections are put together and the time that the sale closes, 
it usually takes at least six months or maybe even 12 months. And between that period of time, a buyer is going to compare the forecast against the actual results that have come in. And if the actual results are below forecast, it's going to hurt the seller's credibility and hurt their negotiating position. Secondly, if a seller shows a very robust growth uh, plan, a buyer, first of all, will be skeptical as to why the seller is selling at such an opportune time for growth. And the buyer might also say, well, if there's going to be growth and you, the seller, are that confident, then we will pay you more when that growth comes to fruition in some sort of earnout or contingent consideration. So there has to be a balancing act. And yes, it's nice to show a growth story and important to show a growth story, but it's the credibility behind that that will dictate whether or not it turns into better value for the business. So, so you mentioned that six to 12 month, uh, and that's, that's sort of the short term runway. I think you, you were giving a, a lot of the, a lot of this process that you've described, I think very, very, uh, candidly, uh, is, is in some cases looking at a, a three, a three-year-plus window to really build a, a good, uh, uh, purposeful and deliberate sale process. But as we record this show, it's it's uh, late August 2020, and uh, you know a global coronavirus befell us in March uh, of this year. Um, I'm sure a lot of those shorter-term, even the longer-term uh, planning runways have been disrupted by that pandemic. Um, what are you seeing in the in the M&A space today? you know, late, we don't know if we're going to have a second wave of this uh, in North America anyways, of this uh, uh, COVID-19. Um, is this a good time to look at selling your business? <laughs> well, let, let me let me just back up to your, your first point in terms of the reference of the six to 12 months. When I use that reference, I'm speaking yeah. of the sale process itself. So by the, between the time that you put a book together and approach buyers to the time the business is sold. The pre-sale planning starts before that, what I call the execution stage. And the pre-sale planning, you're quite right, maybe two or three or more years, depending on the nature and complexity of the business and the personal wishes of, of the business owner. So again, there's really two phases, what I call the planning phase, that could be you know, years, and then what I call the execution phase, which is, we normally say six to nine months, but we give it 12 months just in case. So just for clarity, clarity there. Sure, yeah. Uh, with, with respect to the timing, um, you know, obviously the, uh, all the markets uh, were shocked you know, back in March and April when the pandemic really first started hitting and people were trying to grasp what was going on. And the, the biggest impact that, that I saw was in raising some financing for a particular client and every single banker I spoke with of all the major banks said to me that it was the most volatile period they had ever seen in their lives, far beyond what they experienced in 2008. So we went through a period back in March, April, May, and even into June, where the, the credit markets and you know, other capital markets really just froze up. But these markets have come back quite strong. So the lending market, which is oftentimes key because a lot of buyers will use debt to help finance a transaction, the lending market has started to come back quite strong. Uh, while it's not nearly as strong as it was in 2019, there's a lot more stability 
and a lot more confidence among the lenders, which, which is important because that's one of the pillars. But on the capital market side, uh, we are now busier than we have ever been, even pre-pandemic. There is a lot of capital out there looking for a home among you know, major corporations and among private equity firms. There's over a trillion dollars of private equity capital alone in North America that is looking for a home. They can't find enough opportunities. Uh, S&P 500 traded companies have trillions of dollars of cash on their books and they're not going to just dividend it out. They're going to look for growth opportunities and they have to look at acquisitions in many cases to continue their growth story and to keep the analysts happy. So, you know, the market has come back very strong and all we have to do is look at the capital markets in terms of the NASDAQ, the, the Dow Jones, the S&P, the TSX. You know, the, the NASDAQ and the S&P in particular are now trading at highs that are beyond what they were pre-pandemic. So there is a lot of money out there, especially with low interest rates. Now, in some, to some extent, not surprisingly, it does depend on the industry sector. Certainly some industry sectors, you know, such as you know, hospitality and, and retail and tourism, they have been very hard hit. And the transactions occurring in those industries, if any, tend to be at depressed prices. So that's, you know, there are some segments where you know, they will suffer probably over the longer term with respect to, uh, to depressed markets. But many other sectors, you know, technology is one, but mainstream sectors like food and beverage, like building products, you know, have come on so strong that you know, we are seeing great auctions for them among prospective buyers that are reminiscent of the heyday of 2016, 2017. So, you know, the, the, the sale of a business, it's nice to uh, sell a business when the capital markets are active, right? The old adage being that a rising tide lifts all boats. So there is a lot of capital out there. There's a lot of capital looking for a home. And I think for mo most business owners, that should be one factor that they consider in their sale. But of course, not the only factor. Really, three things have to align in order for a business to be ready for sale. Number one, the, the capital markets have to be good, which in most sectors they are, but in some they're not. Number two, the business has to be ready for sale. And this means, again, having a good management team in place, a having a nice clean balance sheet, getting rid of all those extras that a business owner may have bought through the, the business personally over the years, making it nice and simple and, and a good first impression for a buyer. And number three, that business owner has to be ready. Right? Again, it is as much a personal decision as it is an economic decision. And you know, she or he has to say, I'm ready to do this. I'm committed. I'm in a position where... If I get a reasonable offer for my business, I'm prepared to transact. So, you know, all in aid of, uh, one of the three metrics is that strong capital markets, that one, that box is checked, but the other boxes will be very fact specific. Well, and, and I'm glad you raised that point that, that way because um, there's probably a bit of a misperception, you know, for a business owner who's, who's sitting there right now thinking, I'd like to sell my business, but I just, you know, I can't get a handle on the direction of the markets. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I should, uh, and again, this is very short term thinking, but, but if they're trying to read the tea leaves a little bit, um, that's probably a mistake. They, they should probably focus on, 
two and three, the business being ready for sale and the business owner being ready uh, for that sale. And um, if the capital markets are, are, are ready, they'll be ready. Um, and uh, you know, that, that tends to be sometimes a, a little bit more of a short term thing. Um, but the readiness of the business and the readiness of the owner, it's going to take a lot of time. And you're saying really, you need all three to align. So it, it's probably a bit of a misperception that people should be sitting on their hands and not starting or, or continuing, maybe more appropriate with any of their planning, because um, maybe a little counterintuitively, the, the uh, despite some of the uncertainty with what's going on, the, the, the capital markets are, are quite robust. Yeah, they, they, they certainly are. Again, across most sectors. Yes. And you know, they're, they're finicky, but you know, a, a well-run business you know, will create interest among prospective buyers. Right? And in an ideal world, a seller wants to create an auction among serious, qualified buyers. And the best way to do that is to have an attractive business because there will always be buyers out there for good quality businesses. Uh, I like to count the number of serious qualified buyers on one hand, but not one finger. Uh, and, th and the reason for that is, you know, when you get down to the short strokes like management presentations and so on, these things are time consuming. And business owners should not underestimate the time and the effort it will take from them personally and their management team to get the sale of a business completed. And each buyer that you meet with, you know, it's a better part of a day between the time you prepare and meet with them and maybe give them a facility tour and follow up questions. And that day is a day invested in the sale, not a day invested in the business. So business owners can't lose sight of running their business as they, as they continue to, to sell it. And that's again, why you want to reward management for all their, all the effort that they're going to have to undertake. Well, and, and you know, that's a, uh, that's a very important consideration uh, that, because business owners are very used to handling all aspects of their business and they may even have this intellectual uh, viewpoint that they're going to handle the sale as well. And, and now they're getting into space that, as you said, it's going to be very time consuming. It's not something they've ever done before. And, and uh, this is what you do. And, and the other part I think they got to get ready for, I mean, um, the buyers are going to be kicking the tires really hard and, and um, that might feel a bit personal sometimes. And uh, having that intermediary uh, or a team of a team of people around you helps to uh, make sure that all those requests for information that are coming in are uh, contextualized uh, and not taken personally so that the process, which the you've, you've taken so much time and effort to get the, the seller ready for is not, um, derailed because of some, uh, you know, due diligence request that seems obscure to the seller, but is, is just par for the course on these kinds of, on any kind of transaction. You're really there to help manage them through the process as well. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, while, while we can manage the, the data room, while we can manage the information flow, there is still a huge commitment from the business owner and their management team in terms of the time that they have to spend. And there is a lot of questions. There are a lot of questions in the confirmatory due diligence period that any buyer and the buyer's advisors, like their lawyer and their accounting firm, are going to ask. And, and they, they're not, they shouldn't be taken personally, but you know, a lot of business owners feel uncomfortable and they have to get their mindset around the fact that once they sign a letter of intent with one particular buyer, 
and that buyer goes in for confirmatory due diligence, it will be very thorough, very comprehensive. They're going to want to see every single contract. They're going to want to turn over every single rock. Uh, I had one client that I thought quite appropriately uh, described it as their daily colonoscopy. Because uh, and you know, it, it, it's, it is a mindset of the business owner and the management team that they have to accept that this is the buyer and their advisors doing their job and not because they don't trust the seller, but because nobody wants any surprises after a transaction closes. And we even encouraged sellers that said, look, you're going to get to a point where there's a letter of intent. And a letter of intent, while it's non-binding, should set out all of the major business points of the transaction. Because there should be no major point with respect to uncertainty after a letter of intent is signed back. And that means it should address things like the purchase price and when it's paid and the role that the owner will take on and any other major economic impact of the transaction. Because once that letter of intent is signed back to one particular buyer, that buyer has the negotiating leverage. Because after that point, it becomes difficult, not impossible, but difficult for a buyer to go back to other, or for the seller rather, to go back to other potential buyers and try to renegotiate the deal. You've got to bet on the right horse with that letter of intent, and you want to ensure that there are no surprises after that buyer executes that letter of intent, because any surprises are going to be to the detriment of the business owner. So if there's lawsuits, if there's disgruntled employees, if there's customers at risk, you better get those on the table before you sign back that letter of intent because they will come back to bite you and they will hurt the entire process, maybe causing a reduction in the purchase price or the deal to fall together entirely. And going back to buyer number two won't be easy and you're going to pay for it. We did a, uh, uh, I, I was part of a, uh, uh, used to be called Cafe, the Canadian Association of Family, uh, Family Enterprise. And um, uh, we, we had an event here uh, in this region and we had some very good local lawyers presenting and the topic of the uh, of the presentation was the importance of your legal documents to achieving value on the sale and I remember when I first looked at that topic as we were going through and I thought well you know that that's pretty esoteric for uh, uh, for most most people uh, I don't think they're gonna be that interested in that uh, but let's run it and see Incredibly well attended, but the present the presentation was horrifyingly um, enlightening because, as you mentioned, you know the daily colonoscopy. The lawyers went through an incredible examples that you would never think of as a business owner of documents that were incomplete, missing, or that were causing trouble. You know, like you mentioned, key employees being uh, wrapped up in a you know make sure they're going to stay. Uh, that that ultimately started to to niggle the value down uh, on the on the sale. So, you know, I, I was impressed at that point with uh, un, uh, an appreciation of the critical importance of some, uh, your role and in managing the expectation of the client. That the role of the lawyer is really important, and the the role of the tax advisor uh, who's going to help minimize the taxes. Like this is a team effort, uh, and and you got to. You really do have to start far back if you can in terms of the timeline because doing that after the fact is just taking money out of your genes, as you said earlier. 
Um, absolutely. So, so let's say a listener is thinking of selling their business. How would they know whether you said, you know, 15 to 20 million, your mid market, um, how would they know whether, and I want just to distinguish a little bit between your space and a business broker. Um, how would they know how themselves to distinguish, which is more appropriate? Is there, is there some simple metrics you could point to that would allow them to make that distinction, uh, uh, at least at the outset, so they know they're talking to the right person? Yeah, and, and certainly what I would encourage business owners to do is to actually talk to different, different parties because, you know, it, in, any party is uh, likely going to be helpful in terms of pointing that owner in the right direction. So as a general rule, you know, businesses that are worth less than $10 million in value, it could be excellent businesses, but, you know, they tend to be uh, sold by low, uh, lower market uh, M&A firms, uh, like little boutiques, or business, uh, business brokers that in a lot of cases will make uh, generally an introduction and then kind of step back and and you might do uh, less work because it's a it's a smaller deal, you know. But the you know the business owner should uh, you know should talk to those people if they are at the lower end of the market in the mid market. So you know if a business owner feels hey I've got a business and I think that it could be worth between you know ten million and a couple hundred million. You know firms like ourselves at Duffin Phelps we're always happy to talk to a business owner and again you know no cost no obligation totally confidential. Uh, and and even for those smaller businesses, I mean, because we have such a large network, and because we are so in tune with strategic buyers and private equity firms, even if there is a smaller business, uh, oftentimes we know exactly who's who's looking for it, and uh, and sometimes these private equity firms are looking for smaller businesses to bolt on to what they already have. So it, it can be a fit. It never hurts to have a call, uh, but. What I would encourage business owners to do is to you know, look at the qualifications of, of each group. What have they done that's relevant in the space? You know, uh, they also should be considering you know, the, uh, the intermediaries' approach to the marketplace. Uh, are they uh, internationally integrated? And is, is that even important? Right? Is it likely that the buyer is going to come from the U.S. or overseas, or is this just a matter of, selling to another group that's down the street. Uh, they should also consider who is going to be on the M&A team, right? So are the people that are sitting in front of that business owner, are they going to be the ones committed to dedicating the time and the effort to get the transaction done? And of course, there is always the question of fees. And you know, selling a business and engaging an intermediary is not inexpensive, but you want a business owner wants to ensure that they're getting more value than they're giving up. So most intermediaries, including ourselves, charge most of our fees on contingency. So the more that we can get for a business, the, the better our fee is. But there's different ways to structure that. You know, some intermediaries will charge a higher percentage on the first few million and lower on the next few million. And what we commonly do is we charge a you know, lower fee up to a threshold and a higher fee beyond that threshold because usually everybody's happy if you can you know, meet or exceed a stretch number. But there's also the, the work fees. You know, many of the uh, many firms out there will charge monthly work fees that could add up to be quite substantial 
even if a transaction doesn't take place. Uh, so you know, business owners have to understand the full picture and pick the group that they think is going to be best, you know, not just based on uh, fees and so on, but based on experience, based on capabilities, based on the team. And, you know, along with that intermediary, ensure that they have good legal counsel. And it may not be their, their lawyer that's helped them through, you know, different aspects in life, maybe, uh, you know, their, their, their will and their, uh, you know, buying a piece of property, et cetera. That individual may be an excellent lawyer, but they really need somebody in their camp that has done a lot of merger and acquisition deals that understands representations and warranties and what's called baskets and caps and all the other technical things that get involved in deals that are important. And, you know, if you, if you mess them up, there could be a uh, liability exposure. So I would encourage any business owner to really talk to, you know, various intermediaries, various lawyers, get things down in writing ultimately before fees are, fees are paid so that, so that there is a complete understanding of expectations and deliverables and costs. And you're describing, you know, that's a really important process. I mean, I think, uh, uh, being prepared to, and that's going to take time too. I mean, they've got to interview people like yourself, firms like your, your own and, and compare. And, and I'm sure that you give input on that as well. You know, that that's an information developing process where they can get to the home of best fit. And one of the, you know, one of the, the interesting things I think about a company like your own in, in the space that you occupy is the universe of potential sources of buyers that you bring to the table. Um, sellers of a business, you know, they may think, Oh, well, you know, for years the, the, the folks up the street have been dripping on me to, to buy this business. And, and, uh, uh, that's, uh, uh, it's time to sell. I'm going to go do that. And they, they may not, you know, that's kind of a crude example, but they may not even really appreciate, who might be interested in getting a toehold in an in, 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 in an industry in Canada like their own? And you mentioned, uh, <coughs> pardon me, um, you mentioned in some of your material that that uh, some of the, the universe includes uh, family offices. Um, how do they get involved in this? Well, you, one of the reasons that I, I sold my firm to Duff and Phelps a number of years ago is because I really like the international platform. So I can go onto our Salesforce system and see every buyer, every company that we've touched and the, uh, you know, the contacts that we have globally. And, and that helps you know, me personally in, in a number of ways. So by way of example, we have what we call coverage officers that collectively cover off 650 of the major private equity firms in North America. So I personally don't have to have all the answers uh, with respect to which private equity firm might be interested in a business or which family office, I know that some of my colleagues uh, are very in tune with these firms and know exactly what they're looking for, and that allows us to narrow down the uh, you know, narrow down the the group you know pretty quickly to those that are serious and qualified buyers, because you know, at the outset of any process you have to decide how broadly you want the auction. And while a very broad auction is, is nice because you can hit, you know, potentially buyers you didn't think of, the broader the auction, the greater the risk to confidentiality. And confidentiality is always a concern. So you never know what a buyer is going to say until you approach them, but you want to ensure from the outset 
that you're approaching buyers that you believe are going to be you know, strategically committed and have the financial wherewithal to transact. And we find in most cases, the right buyer is not necessarily a direct competitor because a direct competitor is thinking usually about how do I minimize cost? How do I take out the headcount and, and consolidate warehouses and so on? And they usually don't want to pay for that and it's disruptive because you're talking to employees about losing their job. What we usually find is that the best buyer is what I call a platform buyer. And a platform buyer usually is not a direct competitor, but might be a similar group for another jurisdiction like the US or overseas, or they might have complementary product or service offerings, but they look at the subject business and say, if I had your people, if I had your products, if I had your customers, I could take it to the next level. And the great thing about that is that those platform buyers tend to be more revenue focused. And it's nice because number one, they tend to pay up more for that revenue prospect. And number two, they tend to walk in the day after the deal closes and say to the employees at a town hall, we don't want to fire anybody. In fact, we want to put more resources, more capital behind this business. We love what you've done. You know, can you help us do more of it globally? And that business becomes a center of excellence globally. And it's a good feeling, not just from the seller's perspective, but also from the employee's perspective that they're being appreciated and they can see growth. And that becomes a much smoother transition. It minimizes the buyer's transition risk. So it's good news for them. It's good news for everybody. So by having this global group of buyers and knowing who to contact is, is key. I mean, anybody can put a list of buyers down on a piece of paper as to who might be there. But you know, one of the advantages that, that firms like mine have is I can actually go in and I can find who the decision maker is. Because if, if I contact the right person and I get that person engaged, be they in Canada or the U.S. or overseas through one of my colleagues, uh, then I know that I might get a quick no, but that's okay. But if I get a yes, I'm interested, it means that I've got the right person who has the power over the resources and the authority to make a transaction happen. So I'm, it reduces the risk of a negative surprise later on. It's really not a process that the, the business owner should be taking on on their own, no matter what help they choose to go with. Uh, uh, they, they really should not be um, uh, out knocking on doors, uh, trying to, to, to find the, the interest for their business. There's so much that goes in behind this process. So let's say we have a listener who's and they understand that uh, a service like your own is is the route they, they want to take. They're looking to sell their business. They're, they understand the timelines. Um, what, what should they be doing today? Uh, what are the first steps that a listener here who's looking at selling their business and, and wants to engage an M&A uh, M outfit like your own, someone like yourself, what should they be doing today to, to begin the process of selling their business? Well, I mean, from, uh, from my end, I'm always happy to have an initial call with any business owner. Again, totally confidential, no cost, no obligation. And just tell them exactly what, what I think. Um, I oftentimes talk to business owners uh, years before they actually engage us because it's a learning process. And, and to one of your previous points, Chris, you know, I, I'm a big fan of helping business owners become educated on the process because it is a daunting process. 
And for most business owners, it's the single largest financial transaction of their life. It's a personal transaction. There's a lot of anxiety behind it. And by having some information and understanding what to expect, it tends to alleviate that uh, some of that anxiety and it makes them a better partner for intermediaries like myself because now they're able to bring things to our attention that will help their own cause. Uh, so in addition to you know having an initial call uh, with, with anybody and, and just talk to them or, or meeting with, with them if that becomes appropriate, um, I also have written, as you, as you noted, a, a number of books actually on uh, in the process of uh, publishing my, my 12th book on uh, valuation and corporate finance and a oh, lot of congratulations them, <laughs> thank you a lot of them are our second edition so it's a bit of a it's a bit of an inflated number uh but uh and a lot of them are are quite technical because i write the the books that are used to train all the valuation experts in canada and those tend to become very technical books but you know for for your listeners you know the ones that might be of greatest interest are i've, I've got a, a book called selling a private company that is uh, that I published through the Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada, uh, and and can be bought through their their portal at the cpastore.ca. Uh, I also publish uh, a little booklet that I, that I self-published, and I began it a number of years ago, and I actually just released the second version. Uh, it's about a hundred pages, and I it's just simply called "Selling Your Business: Straightforward Answers to Common Questions." And it's really just a question and answer thing that I find that most business owners uh, like to read because it's designed to be a simple read, non-technical, but answers a lot of the questions that most business owners have, such as how many buyers should I approach and you know, what information should I give a buyer? What information shouldn't I give a buyer? What should go in a letter of intent? What are representations and warranties? You know, should I expect uh, a holdback? So all of these questions that you know, over the past quarter century that I've been doing this, I find come up very frequently. I've tried to consolidate in this little booklet uh, that, that I have, and I just you know, sell or it's being sold on, on Amazon as well. Uh, and it really helps to educate a lot of business owners about the fundamentals so that they can also ask questions that they need to ask when we, when we meet or have a phone call. Well, I will put uh, uh, I will put links to both of those uh, books for our listeners that are interested in in doing some additional homework um, uh, on the show notes for this episode. And uh, I, I would encourage. I have read uh, both uh, uh, probably an older version of the second document you were referring to there, the straightforward answers, uh, but uh, as well as selling a private company. Um, these are great resources uh, for anyone who's, who's starting to get their, their mind uh, around what the selling process is going to look like. And I think it gives, it answers, as you said, it educates. It answers key questions and, and educates people with uh, common questions um, that, they, that most uh, business owners will have on, on the, sale of their, uh, the sale of their business. Howard, um, as always, you've been a, a tremendously generous with, with your time. And I know on behalf of myself and all of the listeners of the Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast, we thank you for uh, your, your, your generosity and your straightforward answers and to helping us understand what, 
we are likely facing or what a listener is likely facing when they are looking at answering the question, what if I intend to sell my business? Yeah, no, certainly uh, very much appreciate the opportunity here. And, you know, I, I know that you'll share my uh, contact information with your listeners. And as I said, I always happy to pick up the phone and have you know, just a initial confidential but straightforward conversation uh, to help people understand the dynamics and, and the risks and the, and the potential because it is a big decision and, and I enjoy helping and working with business owners. I will most certainly give uh, uh, the contact information on the show notes. And I typically also put the, put the guests LinkedIn uh, uh, profile connection as well for those that uh, like to go through that route. Um, again, thank you, Howard, for sharing your wisdom on what if I intend to sell my business. And uh, I wish you all the best and take care. Okay. Thank you very much, Chris. All the best to you as well. Thank you. Thank you so much to Dr. Howard Johnson for joining the Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast this week. His contact information, bio, and article links to the various materials he described during the show will be available on the show notes for this week's episode. Next week on the Inception Family Wealth Hour, we feature American lawyer and author Catherine Hodder. She will discuss the various ideas in her book, Estate Planning for the Sandwich Generation, How to Help Your Parents and Protect Your Kids. Join us next week on the Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast.